welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Behavioral Grooves is a podcast that explores the question, why do we do what we do? Where we talk a little music and we leave you with some ideas on how to apply behavioral science to your work and life. We are building a community of behavioral science practitioners around the world, whether that be formally in your job or research or more informally in applying these lessons to your life and relationships. Yes, and we would love to hear from you. Yes, we would. Get in touch with us via Twitter. We love Twitter and we can be reached at at what motivates and at T Houlihan, or just leave us a message on the behavioralgrooves.com website. We want to know how we are doing and what topics or areas that you would like to see us explore in greater detail. Also, if you have a suggestion for a guest, please let us know. We are always looking for fun, engaging guests that can bring a unique perspective on this topic. That is so true. That's what we're all about. We are. So today's episode is part of our UPenn Nobeck series, where we talk with researchers who presented at the University of Pennsylvania's Norms and Behavior Change Conference way back in October of 2019. Oh man, we learned so much there. Agreed, agreed. And now we get to share some of those learnings with our listeners. Yes. Eugen DeMont is the Senior Research Fellow with the Identity and Conflict Lab in the Political Science Department at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, uh, but wait. Yeah. I, I know this is coming. There's, there's, there's more, isn't there? <laughs> there is more. He is also a fellow in the Behavioral and Decision Sciences Program and the Behavioral Ethics Lab, also at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, is there more? There is more. Oh, my God. Yeah. He is also an external fellow for the Center of Decision Research and Experimental Economics at the University of Nottingham. Why do we always get these underachievers on the program, Tim? I don't understand. Classic. I know. When are we going to get somebody that actually gets something done? <laughs> oh, my God. Totally amazing what our guests do. I'm, yes. This is opposite day. That was, that, was, that was not there. All right. So our conversation with Eugen talked through a bit of the Nobeck Conference and its history, but then we delve into his work on social norms, particularly as they relate to changing behavior and to how norms impact that. We also touch upon the backfire effect that nudges can have, and are there behavioral changes via nudges? Are those sustainable or are they not? Yeah, this was really, really cool. Of course, we also talked about music. Oh, we did. And we did. And he expanded some of our international musical tastes. Yeah, some good German bands in Very there. Very cool. I, I don't do a good German accent. I don't even know why I tried. Anyway. I, th I think it was worth a try. I think <laughs> it was it, a bad try. It was a anyway. bad try, but it was worth it. All right. It's a great conversation and one that I'm sure that you will take a few lessons from. And if you want to hear about the lessons that Tim and I took from this session, make sure that you listen to the grooving component that we do right after the interview. And we've got a bonus track after the grooving session where we will give you, the listener, some specific ideas from this episode and how you can act on it right away. I think people are going to get a lot from this episode. Uh, I did. I, I did too. Yeah, you did as well, Kurt. So with that, we urge you to sit back with your bad apple drink. Oh, people, <laughs> that'll be it. That'll be a clue. That's foreshadowing. And, uh, and listen to our conversation with Dr. Eugen DeMont. Okay, 
So Ogden, tell us a little bit about the conference. So the, the Norms and Behavior Change Conference 2019. Yes, so this is the third installment of this workshop. We had the very first in Nottingham two years ago. A very small group got together trying to figure out how to use norms for the better, how to understand norms in the context of behavioral change and try to apply and try to address this from an interdisciplinary point of view. Um, last year we moved to Penn, made it bigger, open to the public, uh, and this year it's even bigger and now it's so interdisciplinary. We have political scientists, psychologists, economists, so it's great, it's been growing. Yeah. Well that was the part that I have been really fascinated with because the interdisciplinary component even in presenting these academic research papers and the questions that come out from the various different fields. Like yesterday, there was an economist up there and then there was a political scientist asking a question that would have never come out in an in a economics discussion solely. So I think those, those cross-pollinations are, are really positive. Is that, I mean, is, that's intentional, obviously. That was exactly the idea because we all seemingly work on the same topic, but really not because there's so many different perspectives, different approaches, different methodologies. And so we see theory and empirical research in the field and in the lab and simulation. So for us, it was important to get people in the same room who are interested really in the same things, but really have completely different approaches to, to answering those. So, yeah. And finding the different, different ways of looking at something might spark some new ideas in their own research or in maybe one of the students that is in here listening in various yes, different absolutely. aspects. absolutely. Economics is sort of, and that's the field I'm coming from, we are known to not really acknowledge often the literature outside <laughs> of economics. Yes. And so this is a good way to, to, to get people and make them aware of this other important research that really and tries to resolve the same issue but using a different approach and we can definitely learn from that. So, yeah. Fantastic. Well, you had a paper that you talked about inside of this as well. So do you want to talk a little bit about what that paper was and, and what the findings were? So. Yeah, absolutely. So, so this is ongoing work uh, with Christina Bicchieri, uh, with Simon Gechta, Daniele Nozenzo. And what we are interested in is understanding how do norms change, to what extent norms change, and what can we do about it if the norms change to the worse. And uh, so this paper really tackles this question uh, from a perspective of dynamic behavior where we try to trace people's behavior over time and we're trying to see how they change with respect to what they observe is happening around them. Okay. And, and so the, the, really the, the key results, there the are many, the many interesting results, but the key result really is um, people really are very much affected by other people's behavior even if they have no reason really to react because there's no, there's no strategic relationship in our context. They're just observing information, has no effect really on their payoffs, but still people care because this information carries norm related information. People care about norms. And so help, so for the listeners who don't understand norms in general, I know it's a, a huge thing, but explain that in a, in, you know, easy to understand way when you're talking norms, what do you mean when you're saying norms? Yes. So yeah, there, there are different definitions. And so I don't want to get uh, in between, sort of in, in a war with, with different people, but the way we understand norms in our context is we use a morally loaded environment in our context, which is you can give money to a charity or you can take money away from a charity. We pre-donate money to a charity and and we, we, we try to understand what is the norm in this context so we have methods to get to the bottom of what is a norm in this particular environment. And so there are different approaches. Christina Bicchieri has her own approach, the other approaches. We use these approaches and we find that people definitely they think that taking, stealing from a charity is definitely not okay. So we establish an that, environment. And that's pretty universal, right? This is, 
That is, uh, yeah, I mean, to the extent that people at least appreciate the, the charity and appreciate the goal of the charity, mm -hmm. we use a very pro-social, good, right. well-reputed sort of uh, charity. And so we know what the norm is, but then we see that people's behavior deviates from that very much. <laughs> In particular, so we've done this at Penn. And Penn students have surprises, at least to the extent to which they were willing to really take money away from the charity. To screw the charity, basically. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, okay, so what are the situations where they're more likely to do that? And yeah, so in, in the context of our research, what we see is that the moment you expose people to other people, bad behavior takes over. So it doesn't even matter almost how many bad people you have in this immediate group that you observe. One bad apple that we show is already enough to pull the whole the whole distribution, the whole group of people who were good to begin with into the bad domain. That's amazing right? that one one bad apple really, I mean, so this old thing about one bad apple spoils the whole bunch, that's really true. Yes. You're actually finding that in, in, with, with your research. Exactly. So we find that, and so the moment people are exposed to others, we see this behavior to accelerate, and just the whole norm is disappears, and taking and sort of this bad behavior towards the chair just accelerates. Right. So, so what are some of the factors? You talked also about social proximity yes. as, as, a, as a compounding component in this. Yes. So how, how does that work? So we'll be coming from the side of sort of the social psychological research that would argue that you care about people who are immediate, more proximate to you, more than about random strangers. And in our context, uh, we, use, we use a simple question that signals something about belongingness to being a fan of a Philadelphia sports team. As we know, that, that matters a lot in Philadelphia. <laughs> Fandom is really important here, so we use but that it, as a But proxy. that might not yeah. be so important to somebody who lives in Atlanta exactly. or Munich. Exactly. So we use this because we ran this at Penn, we use that. And of course, if we would have used a different context, we would need to come up with something they care about. But yep. so in our context, mm -hmm. we use this as a social proximity marker. And they answer this question, and in some of variations of this experiment, in addition to seeing behavior, you know, also see who's this person who engages in this behavior. Does he know something about the sports team in the same way as I know something about the sports team? And so the, the research would suggest that if we have a lot of cohesion, a lot of proximity, people answering the question in the same way, that this should make people care more about upholding a social norm. So I feel yeah. like this person and me are, are more alike. And so there we have this element of, exactly. of element of togetherness. That's a wrong way of putting it. I, I can't no, think but, of the right but, words. But there is but, a yeah. sense of we're, we're kind of in this together, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so you are in this together, but not from a, from a sort of game point of view, because you no. never action to act with them. It's just you are in it together from a feelings perspective, right? And so what we show is that the moment we give people this additional proximity information, this deterioration of the norm is really muted. And I think the, the pitch, the key result of that paper is it's muted, not because now I'm not responding at all to what's going on around me. People respond very much so, but now they respond to bad behavior, but also to good behavior. And so on average, this sort of removes this erosion of the norm because good behavior is picked up and bad behavior is picked up. And if I don't know the proximity, people just respond to just the bad behavior. Just re respond yes. to the bad behavior. Yes. But if the, if the behavior that I'm picking up is from the, the somebody who is like me, yeah. then that mitigates that component and, and it brings that, it so, decreases the bad behavior. So, so if I find out that there is a, uh, another Philadelphia sports fan uh, in this game, the situation with me, uh, I'm less likely to be a bad guy. 
right? You are less likely to, you, you definitely respond not to the same extent to their bad behavior, yeah, right? Okay. But now in addition to that, you now respond for the first time really to their good behavior. And good behavior in our context is very costly. So really just the simple information about this person might be like you on this one domain makes people to reconsider their very selfish motivation of maximizing their payoff of this experiment and they, they reconsider maybe picking up the good behavior as well. So, so fewer people screw the charity, basically, yes. Yes. when, when they, they sense that, oh, there's, there's someone else who's observing me. Exactly. Yeah, yes. okay. So we talked with Christina yesterday and she talked about referential networks. So, it's, it, it, so it, it, this is a proxy for a referential network kind of in, in that yeah, sense? Absolutely, and, and I think it's important to, to acknowledge there's some variation, I mean, heterogeneity, as we would call this, with respect to how people respond to this referential network. So once you break down who is really contributing to this erosion and who is responding to what's going on around them, we see it's not the bad guys. The bad guys in our environment, they just are completely invariant and they ignore what's going on around them. They just keep doing this thing very consistently. So the bad guys are bad guys regardless of what anybody else in is doing. In our context at least, yes. Yep. In our context where, where there's no strategic component of, of responding to somebody. It's really just purely informational and people don't respond if they are bad guys in our experiment. But it's the good guys, unfortunately, the good guys who are being swayed by other people's behavior into this bad domain and turning almost the good guys into bad guys, oh. but proximity, oh. but proximity in our context allows to mitigate that effect. But we can't lift in this situation. You're not lifting the bad guys up by showing them good behavior, even if it is socially proximity. That, that yes. proximity component is, oh, this person's like me and they're doing good. I don't care. I'm so I'm a bad person. I'm just going to keep yeah, money in a very self-serving way. They, yeah. they tend to ignore this information. It's kind of kind of sad. Yes, <laughs> it, it is. It is kind of sad. A lot of our research is not purposely but it is around like focusing on why people do the bad things that they do but yeah. the real I mean the goal is to find out what we can do about this yeah. and how we can fix that and so some of our other research focus on how to nudge people maybe into behaving in a better way and so not not all of that is gloomy but this particular research shows a gloomy well let's outlook. talk about some of that other research yeah. right yes. so you yes. had done some work with Gary Bolton uh, on nudges backfiring yeah. so Talk a little bit about that. Give us the big picture overview. At least give us the headlines. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so nudges are very in vogue. Everyone likes nudges. Companies like nudges. Researchers. Hey, Richard often, Thaler won the yeah. Nobel Prize and, and, because yes. of nudges. Yes, and 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 rightfully so. And and Cass and others they really contribute to this research. And it's important to understand at least when do these things work and when do they not work. But in addition to the why don't they work. Uh, and so we have this one research project in which we try to understand how a simple nudge which all it does is really to make behavior observable to others affects people's behavior. And we would assume that making behavior observable to others should turn on sort of our concern about social image and how people perceive us and reputation concerns on how people will interact with us down, down the road. And what we show is that depending on, on the environment in which we test, we see that being observed but without the ability of enforcing behavior can backfire. So unless I can actually enforce good behavior, just the pure observability of actions doesn't always work. In our context, sometimes even backfires because what people try to think about now is to get ahead of these other people. And so now I'm, I'm making these people my reference network yeah. in a way, and now I really care about how my wealth compares to their wealth, and that is sort of the backfiring in our country. So, so, we, the, yeah. so the relative component, all of a sudden, 
I see this 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 person who I don't have any interaction with at all, but yeah. now they become this reference point that I have to beat because I am now in in a sense believing that I might be in competition. In a way, with yes, them. yes, and and we are we're very concerned, of course, with the with answering the next question, which is how can we fix that? Yeah, <laughs> and so there we couldn't just go. stop there and be like, well, you know, unfortunately, not just you know, but so we focused in what we find very consistently with this other research. Um, is that social norm interventions do work. So if we make it very salient and we let people think about what is really appropriate behavior in this environment, people focus more on the society and the welfare and on the charity that they interact with and less so about themselves. So this greediness or competitiveness that we see goes away the moment people are sort of primed and focused on social work. So is, was this a, did you use a public goods kind of experiment on this? How, how, how did you operationalize oh, it that? Is, it's very similar to the paper we just talked about. It's, a, again, a non-strategic setting, and it's just me and a charity, and it's all that happens. And now, in addition to that, sometimes other people observe me, and sometimes they don't. And sometimes those other people have an enforcement mechanism, and okay. I know that. And so, so it's, it, most of our research tries to distinguish between different mechanisms. Yes. And uh, mechanisms that are often in clash, like in public goods games, are really informational value of behavior and sort of the monetary component of me trying to not be the sucker in, in a strategic environment. And we don't want this clash, so we remove this monetary component and we only focus on information. Right? Okay. And so that's what we do here, that's what we do in this previous paper and yeah, also in others. You know, uh, there's uh, just thinking about w sort of what's next, and we're talking about the how nudges are so invoked. There's some 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 papers out there t uh, recently that are saying Let, let's get beyond nudges. Yeah. Uh, do you feel that that is a sort of an, an appropriate thing to be talking about in the social context, in social norms, to say can we kind of move just beyond nudges? Is there yes. something else? So I'm I'm. I'm biased, of course, because I'm part of Christina's team here, but uh, sort of the mission that she has been, she's been publishing books and papers over and over again, is that we need substantial change to, in, to, to induce behavioral change. And so what, what the way she perceives that is, if we think about nudges, nudges are often just, I just change the position of the snacks, and as you walk in, you will not go to the back of the supermarket because you don't want to actually, you know, just just it's put a couple this extra steps right. and various different but things. But then the question is, does this spill over? Does this, is this a long-lasting effect? So the moment I put these snacks back at the beginning of the aisle, are people now actually learning and just passing those snacks and they really learn something? So the question is, to what extent do simple nudge intervention actually change people's understanding Understanding people's beliefs and people's, at the end of the day, people's norms. And so there is this, this distinction that we try to make between nudges and norms, which is nudges tries to tackle changing individual behavior. Norms try to, to tackle collective change, collective behavior. Mm. And so the next step that we see, and so Christine and I call, well, mainly she calls it norm nudging, is that we can use social norm insights into improving the way we nudge people in a way that will spill over and have long-lasting effects. Have long, yeah. so in that, we talk about injunctive norms and um, uh, descriptive. descriptive norms. Yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm at a loss for words here. It's been a long couple days. Uh, but with that, there was some, we, we were talking with Christine about this, but I want to kind of go back into this deeper is, so are you looking at changing those how do we change those those norm components, those social norms, and how people view those to to make that change, to make that behavior change? So, what is it changing the the injunctive norms? Is it changing the descriptive norms? Yeah. Is it, or is that too broad? And am I just 
simplify no, this? No, it's, it's, it's a great question. Also, the sort of the million and billion dollar questions. How do we, how do we tackle the right aspects of these things? And so The right aspects. The right yeah, aspects. Yeah, that's, and so, that's and, and, and Christina, in her most recent book, she pushes this idea of role models. And often we are in this bad equilibrium, in this bad state where everyone is engaging in bad behavior or where people have the wrong beliefs about what people do. Right? So they call this pluralistic ignorance, where I have a wrong perception, wrong understanding of the environment, and that makes me not change my behavior. So what we need to do is we need to, we need to change their beliefs, we need to, to update their beliefs in, in a way that can facilitate the better behavior. We need to focus them on better people, on role models, and we need to change their perspective and outlook. And this is challenging, and the field research on that is existent, but often shows ineffective uh, sort of approach. Well, it's probably more than just information, right? Yeah. It's probably more than just a communication. It's it's also modeling and being in social context Absolutely. and a whole variety of Absolutely. things. And making yeah. sure you have that the, the the relational network that is the appropriate exactly. one. That was exactly. one of the interesting pieces that we talked with her about her work in India, yes. where it's like, it's not the village neighbors, yes. which you would assume, right? It was an assumption that I, when she said that, I said, oh, of course it would be my neighbors across the street. And it, no, it is it's only if they're from, you know, family or close friends. Absolutely. And then Absolutely. the neighbors across the street, I don't yes. care about. They're yes. not part of that, that, that network. So. so peer effects are extremely important and have always been an important part of my research interest is we learn so much from others and we interact so much with them, but how do we stop or at least mitigate learning the wrong thing from others, and how do we make people learn the good thing and change the behavior? So that so, is... So, so yeah. tell us, how, how do we do that? <laughs> well, I mean, based on the That's paper that I... Answer, yeah, right? yeah, it's such an easy answer, of course, but, <laughs> but based on the, the research that I presented today, really, is the proximity makes people to care more about the existing norms, right? So we yeah. need to make sure that we have the right norm in place, but then we need to make sure that people are actually... Uh, observing the right people and the close people in the environment who so can be role models for behavioral change. So, uh, this is way off topic here, so I, awesome. if, if I'm going way <laughs> off topic on this, I apologize, but uh, Robert Cialdini that we interviewed before and we had a conversation with him, it wasn't on the, on the podcast, but there was this component where he's talking about trying to change political beliefs in, in this really, you know, divergent, you know, left versus right and neither neither talks. And he said, the way to do that is is to say, I once thought like you did. I, I used to be just like you. So again, it's getting that social I, I believe now yes. what I'm what I'm hearing is that there's it's building that social proximity to that that person so that they're not dismissive of your your ideas right away and you might be able to shift some of their mindset and some of their norms. I don't know if that... Yeah, absolutely. And, and so what we need to make sure is that we've reduced the wiggle room for people to avoid learning the right things either. Right? Yeah. Just, so just because we have the right people doesn't mean that people are taking this seriously. And a paper that was just presented right after mine by uh, Marta Sara Garcia from UCSD, she looks at this with her co-author, they look at how people pay sometimes a substantial amount of money to avoid learning information <laughs> that would really be against what they want to do. And so, so we crazy. need to make sure that we reduce these wiggle rooms and make people accountable and, and, and care about it. So to agree, some motivated reasoning, but with actually financial components. So yeah. Like, I will pay to be ignorant yes. on this component. Exactly. Yeah. It's so cool that you're, that you're approaching this as an economist. 
right? And in, in some ways, it reminds me so much of sociology, right? And Coleman, I think of you know, mm-hmm. Coleman's boat. You're talking about you know nudges on an individual basis, the micro, and the, and then the the, the the peers, the the social side. Uh, I, I think that's it's fabulous that that this is a very interdisciplinary kind of work that yes. you're doing. Yes, and so I, I was very happy to be able to join Christina's team a few years ago because she is interdisciplinary in her thinking, but also the team around her is extremely interdisciplinary. So I'm one of the few economists, really, only. We have psychologists and political scientists and and philosophers. People are thinking about similar things with different approaches, and being Mm -hmm. able to bounce ideas off of each other is really what makes this a fruitful sort of endeavor. And most of my co-authors really have bring completely different perspectives, and so I learn from them, and I embrace interdisciplinary research myself. that's Wouldn't fantastic. it be great if this model could be carried into the corporate world then, too? I, I would love to see a more interdisciplinary approach to problem solving in the corporate setting as well. Yeah. I think, that I that think across be... many settings, governmental, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, NGOs, uh, you look at all of those. And, and, we, and the, you know, we get siloed. At, at our very first podcast, we were talking with James Heyman, who that was one of his big things. He says, we should just form, we should have problems. We should have, we should organize universities around problems, not around our disciplines, right? Here's a problem. So I'm coming at it as an economist, you're coming at it as a psychologist, you're coming at it as a philosopher. It's the same problem, but we all look at it differently and let's let's take the best of all those worlds. And that's what I hear you're doing. Yeah, and some other teams, I mean, shout out to the Carnegie Mellon people. I mean, they their team is is equally, I mean Interdisciplinary, well, we, and we, yeah, the social yeah. Interdisciplinary and so, exactly. Team, yeah. And so, so this is really a yeah. great approach. And so, having that diversity is is what we can and should embrace for yeah. Our yeah. research. Yeah. I know you're you're itching. you're itching to, to get to to get to the thing that you always want to get to. So music, yes. <laughs> and, and what's really great about this, uh, Oigen, is that uh, Kurt can just read my eyes on this. <laughs> and yes. Maybe we've been doing too many you of know, these. A hundred <laughs> of these episodes, and I've got it down. Yes, there you yes, go. Yeah. So, what's on your playlist right now? What are you listening to? Well, right now it's really just mostly peaceful music because it was a few hectic weeks in the past. So I tried to just calm down. Um, but I would say I am, uh, I, for the most part, I listen to hip hop. That's that sort of okay. Uh, so what's peaceful yeah. music for you though? Is, well, is it, it hip hop well, and, and just a you know? It can be, but it's just it's just sort of ambient type of sound. Just something that makes me calm down, yeah. and just relax. So I most recently I wasn't able to embrace my actual passion of, of music, but. I would say if I can choose what to listen to and what gets me hyped, uh, it, it would be it would be hip hop. Yeah. Okay, and, and so who, okay. No, no. You ask, you no, ask these no, questions. I, I want I, I want to see how how well do you do? Let's put you on the spot here. On, on the music <laughs> questions, you, you you're making us fail right here. You know this. I will I will utterly flub this up. So no, but who who from a hip hop perspective? Who yes. are the who are the artists that you listen to? Okay, so um, being a German, right? So I, I moved to Germany when I was a kid. I spent most of my adult life in Germany. Uh, we do have a German hip-hop rap type of history, and, and it exists. Um, so I try to, even though I live in the U.S. now, I try to sort of embrace my, my origin, right? Yeah. I mean, so I, I, yeah, and so the German, the, the German um, rappers would not, you know, ring any bells here. But, but in, terms of, in terms of the American ones, I, I guess I, so somebody like... So hip hop R and B, somebody like Drake, who yep. who really stretches the different 
uh, musical spheres is something yeah. I can listen to. Yeah, uh, kind of crosses the crosses yes. the boundaries, crosses yes. genres. And he yeah. works very interdisciplinary too, right? So yeah. he has very different uh, approaches to music. So I, uh, I I would embrace his music. Did okay. you grow up with hip hop? Was this a a, a strong I, part of your musical heritage? Not so much because I growing up uh, I. Uh, I played violin and piano, and so I had more of the, the classical music around me. Uh, I, I, I would say I have a lot of passion for jazz, which comes from my dad, who just me growing up, uh, um, you know, allowed me to, to listen to that. But I would say I didn't necessarily have a, um, a lot of hip hop around me. It was just it was always music that made me let lifted me up, and yeah. it was easy to dance to also. Right? So <laughs> there many times when I still went to the clubs, right? So, yeah. So. So I, we do have listeners in Germany. So yes. I, what what is a German? And, and Tim will actually look it up and listen to it. I I, I will tell you. I probably won't. But Tim are, are there any artists that you'd like to to talk about? German hip hop. Somebody you want to say? Hey, this is the guy or, or group or gal that you you think. So I I would probably not embrace anyone uh, during the topic because many of the texts that they sort of that they write about are. Uh, borderline acceptable, right? So because German, <laughs> German hip-hop hip pushes a lot of the sort of the bad boy narrative that oh, what really? the, uh, US uh, hip-hop used to do. Okay. Um, but, you know, there are, there are famous people. There are people like Bushido and there are people, there are people like Echo Fresh. And so there are different people that produced uh, music that um, that is, well, famous, at least in the German-speaking realm, but yeah. So, yeah. Okay. you just brought up a really interesting question. You're yeah. talking about social norms yes. and now you're talking about the hip hop artists and, and again in the US we still you know yeah. there are some negative I mean they are promoting a, yeah. a viewpoint of that we would as a society probably say is is not good the gangster gangster, gangster rap you know, still exists uh, you know misogyny to, to women and all of these different kind of things yes. how how does how do those artists how do they shape those social norms and have, is there research on that that you know of or? oh man well so that great question that I know really nothing about I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure there are researchers who study the impact of music yeah and through that lens they study the impact on the norms uh, I mean we know the research that I know in our environment we know that people react very much to to the TV shows that they watch to telenovelas Christina has done work on telenovelas yeah, the soap operas right? yep, and, yeah. yeah so so we know that people are shaped by what they listen to and what they say. I'm sure people have done amazing research on that. None of that is so, but part of role models as yeah. well, right? Yeah. So you were saying role models, and yeah. so these people are role models, and so it'd be an interesting. Comp I'm going to say component again, and I stopped myself, and then I said it. So, but there you go. Uh, it's an interesting line of research that you could go down to, again to saying changing behavior. Can you influence that norm through? Having a artist like Drake or you know uh, Kanye West uh, change some of the the narrative that is going out yeah. there yes. and, and being some of those components because they do have that role model element of, of being up there. Yeah, I agree 100. percent Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Thank you. Oh, oh actually, one, one, one last question about music. Um, do you, you talked about you've been through a very hectic period. Uh, I can ima only imagine what it's like getting ready for this conference. But do you like to listen to music when you are working? Or do you like silence? And if you do like to listen to music, what kind of music do you like to listen to? It changed. When I was a student, I could listen to anything, um, even with words. Many people say they can't listen to anything that has words because that distracts them. I used to be able to do that, and it kept 
me like in a good rhythm. It, it just helped me to, hmm. to focus on I didn't really perceive it actively, but just the fact that there's some rhythm to it, mm -hmm. that there's some melody to it, really helped me to learn the things. It has changed. Maybe it is, I'm getting older too, right? So maybe <laughs> it is a component like that. Nowadays, I, I cannot. I, it's, if I need to work and I need to focus, Music just distracts me. Yeah. So unfortunately. Yeah. Interesting. That's very cool. Oigan, well, thank you. Oigan, thank you. No, thank you so awesome. much. This was great. This is Thanks great. so much for coming and being able to like engage with us. So it's Thanks for inviting us. Yes, yeah, it is that was awesome. Pleasure. And I'm we're, glad it worked out. And we're having a blast. Great. We're having a yes. blast. Come back, please. Yes. Ready? Ready. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learn from our behavior groups interview, have a free flowing discussion, and whatever else comes into our bad apple brains. The bad apple brain. The bad apple brain, yeah. man. So you what bring me down. You're the bad apple influence in my life. Then you should just cast me aside. Should I? Is that how that Pretty works? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. You're not going to change me. I'm a bad apple. You're I'm, a bad I'm always going to be a bad apple. You're a rock star. <laughs> yeah, rock stars are always bad apples. So what did you think about Oigan? That was... It was fascinating. Oh, he's amazing, isn't he? Oh my God, he is. He's just what a great, brilliant pers personal history, personal history, brilliant guy. Yeah, uh, and brought some really interesting components. Again, so intrigued by the Nobec conference and bringing terrific. social yeah. norms and how those impact decisions and behavior change. Uh, again, it was an area that I wasn't really you know, well-versed in. And so all of the conversations that we had there, all of the presentations that we heard, I think just added that, raised that level of knowledge up way higher than it was before. So. And a shout out to Eugen and, and to Chris Nave yep. uh, for inviting us. Oh yeah. Just, that was just super cool of those guys to include us. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, talk about Bad Apple. That Bad Apple, that was so fascinating the the findings from his research right that 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 bad apple effect that that one person who is now negatively going against the stated social norms thus influencing these other people the non-bad apples the non-bad apples the people who are are following those stated norms particularly in this where it's a giving to a charity and all the all the great things right. that are going on that and yet one person can influence that in such a negative manner. Yes. And so what I found, I found that fascinating, but then I found the other part that kind of within that that's fascinating is that the, the bad apples don't change if they're showing the good, good behavior, right? Yeah. And so within both of those that I wanted to kind of explore with you is, all right, so can we extrapolate? And I, go, I know extrapolating out from one research study is probably not a smart thing, but again, that's what we do, right? Well, we, what, what can we take away from it, right? What can we take away from our real world and real yeah. life? And and I think about um, managing teams uh, mm -hmm. in the corporate environment, and you think about uh, occasionally either adopting someone who, that you know comes in from another team or you hire someone that turns out to be a bad apple. I'm thinking about the bad apple people specifically, that they be, they become part of the team where you generally had a, a good-natured, upbeat team to start with, and now you've got someone who is soured on everything. Yeah. And my my own personal uh, belief, history has been, don't worry, the social norm will rule. Right? <laughs> yeah. That the good stuff will They will overpower. come into the team, and our team has this positive team culture yeah. with all these norms that we, we support each other, we positive, all that. 
Oregon yeah. Oregon got uh, got me thinking that wait a minute <laughs> that's that's a myth yeah that's just not going to happen and and you got to find alternative ways of dealing with it well I've dealt with I've had a number of people come up to me in in, in the work that we do right and they're they're talking to me about how can I get this person to to be better on the team and in my past life you know in in multitudes of times 15 years ago, 10 years ago in helping companies around this team and different components. I said components again. I always say that. I got to stop that, right? (laughs) Anyway, working with teams, I would say, yeah, just what you were saying, that just give them some time, make sure that the culture is strong and they will come around. Because culture rules. Because culture rules and that's the norms that we have. And what I've found though from personal experience, but also from you know, working with others and the research that I've seen out there is that's not the case, that we really need to be very decisive when we have those toxic people on the team to remove them from the team as quickly as possible because that toxicity spreads. Yes. And that's what I think this research points to is that, you know, even when it's not on a team, when it's in this other environment that that happens. And so it's even doubled down when you get on a team. I've seen this in the recent political environment is is getting more toxic as oh, well, yeah. right? You know, more combative. And I've seen uh, people in both parties uh, stand up in at town halls and take a question, a very loaded question from either a supporter or uh, a detractor. Uh, and and the the person leading the town hall again, both I've seen this on both parties. Shoot them, pretty much shut them down. Mm. Pretty much say no. Actually, th- you know what you're what you're talking about is a myth. That is a conspiracy theory. That is not accurate. And we're going to be dealing with facts uh, in this conversation. And and we're not going to we're not going to deal with that. And and to actually just shut down that bad apple. Uh, has been uh, effective in in the the two videos that I you know that I've seen and again well it's not a big N yeah. but I, I'm impressed that first of all that both I've seen both parties do it and I'm disappointed that people are emboldened to be bad apples in these contexts it's one thing to be a bad apple online to be kind of quasi anonymous um, or uh, it's another thing to be a bad apple in a team or in in a in a public space like in, that. In a public space where you end up having the social norms that are right there and, and that you are definitely ab- acting like where you're yelling out or speaking out or interrupting and very being very disruptive over that, yeah. that meeting that people are trying to do. I mean, there's been plenty of uh, episodes where, you know, Council, city council meetings have been shut down. County board meetings have been shut down. You know, politicals coming in and doing, you know, the the tours within their districts being shouted down and various yes. different things. And that doesn't add to the the level. I mean, and, and again, people rationalize that away, right? And so they're doing different things, but it is against the typical social norm. And Be- so- Because as Christina Bicchieri says, social norms are bundles of expectations. Right. So we walk into an event like that with some expectations, and then we've got all these people adhering to that to a large degree. And then we've got one or two, you know, acting as bad apples. I think that that's amazing. So do you think that's because and they, they have be trendsetters? Seen, because yeah, because they have seen that in other places. And again, with social media, now you get to see 
that that one person who did it in you know whatever county in Arizona it was, and now being here in Minnesota, I'm going, oh well, they did it there. I can do it here. Right. So right. it's expanding on that, right? The, the Bobo doll effect kind of kind yeah. of thing, really. You know, now I've got license to to do whatever the hell I want to do. So that bad apple, you're 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 poisoning that barrel and that barrel has just gotten huger because it's social media has spread the ability to to have that poison go across a multitude of channels. Yeah, absolutely. We might have to talk to Oignan about that. That might be something that we maybe, could go in. Maybe we will. What else? What, what else? Well, uh, so the, the one, oh, well, before we go off of the bad apple okay. thing, the piece that was reassuring that I yeah, found that's right. positive not, on this was that, yeah. was that there was that muted impact when people felt an affinity or proximity yeah, with that other person. So right. again, that the Phillies uh, connection, right? I think because they did this in, in that Philadelphia area. And so that muted the effect of mm-hmm. the bad apple. So again, thinking about how we can influence that. So hopefully if you do have a strong team culture and that, that, that culture is there and people feel an affinity towards the team and you get that bad apple on it, it's not as toxic as it could be if you had a team that maybe didn't have that group Co- cohesiveness. Cohesiveness, right. So, right. Or, or, or that that set of solid expectations about this is how we do things. And this is, and, and, and the identity with that, and the mm-hmm. identity with the others on the team. So, yeah. so I think there's some positive there. And I think there's some aspects that when, as a, if you're a leader in an organization, really build those connections, build that semblance of of proximity, build the component that we are part of this group together. Yes. Yeah. Because it makes a difference. Okay. um, On to to number two. The nudges backfiring. Yeah. How about that? Oh, and I, you know, like, again, how could that happen? Well, it happens, right? <laughs> right, it does. <laughs> and so, you know, having that social proof out there and nudging them in the proper behavior, which actually leads them, leads them instead to being more competitive. And, and again, it was that idea of what is the nudge actually activating in our brain, right? Is it activating that social comparison, that social norm that we're doing, or is it? of the behavior that you're wanting to do, or is it is it activating this competition piece of, I need to be better than them, right? Yeah. I want to make more than them. So it's competition and various different pieces, which goes, again, to something that we talk about all the time, context matters. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the complexity, what, like what came across uh, to me in this conversation was the complexity in which we live. We live in very complex environments. The context, you know, tiny changes. You know, Cialdini, I love when Bob talked about about just, you know, trying to replicate an experiment and thinking that the, the colors on the walls in the room where they conduct the sper- experiment, different from, from the first time to the second time, could alter the impact, could alter the effect. Well, yeah. And so actually, tiny. Tiny. And now that you say that, we just had the, the meetup with Terry Wu about who, colors, about colors, yes. and the different impacts of colors, and I didn't put those two together, but now I'm thinking about that. That, wow, the color on the wall in the room that you're doing the experiment on or in could drastically impact it, it and it's something that we don't even consider. No, we, we tend not to. And by the way, I think that's your Kiki brain at work right there. Oh, <laughs> that's my booba brain bringing things together. There you go. But doing it in a really, really good way. Okay. Yeah. So I, okay. I, that nudge component and, and how that works. And I, I liked his idea 
um, you know, limiting that that nudge backfire is if you can get think people to think about the larger social impact, at least in his in that research study. So once they got people to think about the larger social impact, then it reduced that that selfishness and the, right. the competitive right. urge there. So again, translating that into the larger world out in general, you know, getting people. So if you're trying to do behavior change, making sure that that behavior change works is get them to think about the behavior change in the right context. So again, framing the whole scenario in a way that is going to drive the behavior that you're trying to do, or in your own life, if you're trying to have behavior change, make sure that you're setting yourself up for success by making sure that context is right in various different pieces of that. Absolutely. So we've talked about music changing in the last... Oh, I have one more thing. Are we going to... You have okay. one more thing? I have one more thing. All sorry. right. Well, go ahead. Get it out on I'm the sorry. table. I'm sorry. I really, Get it I, out. What, so, just because you wrote it down, you have to talk about no, it? No, this was actually one of my more... <laughs> I, I could have skipped over the last oh. one, but this is the one that I really wanted, <laughs> okay. right? So Let's hear it. I'm, and again, it goes back into nudges versus social norms and changing behavior that's sustainable, okay. right? And so his his talk, the, the, the talk it got re, me really thinking about was, all right, you you change the the choice architecture, you change the environment. So, for instance, putting the cookies in the back of the the, the cafeteria to the back in a trans right. or a, a, a fewer people get get go after the cookies because they're not as readily available. Right in that situation at lunch in your corporate environment, but right. that doesn't change how that person views cookies. And so when right. they go right. home. They still eat the damn Oreos that are in the if in, they're in the cupboard. If they're in the cupboard, right? Unless so, they move them to the basement. Unless they move them to the basement, <laughs> like I do, right? Which I haven't done lately. Which is damn, I ate the whole thing of, of, oh, of Oreos the other oh, week. It's no. like, oh, these are really good. Ooh. <laughs> Put them in a little warm milk. No, but but the idea of if you want sustainable behavior change that is not environmentally dependent, you have to look at changing the the self-identity or the social identity that these people have. And what did he call it? It was um, norm nudges, right? Looking, I thought I thought that was just fascinating, the, the idea of, of- Using norm nudging. Norm nudging, right? Yeah, right. Um, yeah, so really looking at that is, you know, and I love this thing, you know, that we can use social norm insights into improving the way we nudge people in a way that will spill over and have long lasting effects. So taking in this norm component into how we think about nudges and how we think about behavior change, which again, before I came to this conference, I wasn't thinking about at all. And now I'm starting to put those together. And I think that's a big piece that we need to make sure that people you know, uh, researchers should be looking at more and and practitioners should definitely be looking at more. I just, I, one thing about the Nobec conference for me was that I felt that norms were underrepresented in my lens of looking at behavior change. And I and I came away and ordered Christina Bicchieri's books, uh, you know, Norms in the Wild and uh, The Grammar of Society. Yeah. Instantly, it was just like, oh man, I've, I've got to get this into my Fine lexicon. Knees. yep. I have to be more educated on this because uh, Oregon, especially, and uh, and Christina just spoke so eloquently about social norms. It was uh, 
it was really great, really refreshing. Lots of really fresh ideas that came out of that. I exactly, loved it. exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's talk music. <laughs> Okay. So, oh, I love no, music. And I'm and glad. I, and, I, and I actually know what you're going to ask me, and I'm excited about this one. It, it, yeah. Yeah, yes. Um, but I, I, I'm glad that we, we didn't get off of that because that was a good thank you for returning to that. Okay. So, we've talked about how music has changed in, in, in over the years, right? So, mm-hmm. especially in the last 50 years, let's say, there's been a dramatic change. Uh, sources of revenue for. Uh, for the artists themselves, you know how they make a living, the distribution of income. So let's talk about touring income in the last ten years. Yes, because Ooh. we have uh, an article that we talks have, we, about we that. We have a little bit of data from Polestar. Which right. is, which Do you is want to share share with the listeners what what this is? So. Well, uh, it, yeah. So so Polestar uh, is able to go out and uh, identify what the gross revenues are for every major tour uh, that's conducted around the world. And uh, so they just, they looked at, they just summed up all the major tours that have happened in the last 10 years, well, through this decade, from right. 2010 to 2019, and, uh, and said, well, we'll, we'll just stack rank the, the top revenue earners. And number one went to U2. Your favorite band. Well, not my favorite band, but, you know, they're in the, the come on, you know my favorite I know. band. Okay. It's not okay. U2. Okay. All right. Although U2 was by far the best concert I have ever been to in my really? life back okay. in 1987, University of Iowa, you know. There you, there you go. But that, but see, which they put on a great show, so... There you go. And they're they're one of the only um, tour stadiums that I've been to in the past probably 10 years, maybe five years. We bought you well, know, tickets they to the do, last. Right. And, yeah. and that's that's one thing is that they're doing really big venues. Mm-hmm. But it, it was interesting to me that they outpaced Ed Sheeran and Taylor Swift and Coldplay. Mm-hmm. Um, when, and and here's, here's, some, here's some facts, in the 2010s, they've only released two records, and in the 2000s, they only released three records. Mm-hmm. In the in the 1990s, they released three records, and in the 1980s, they released five records. Yeah, so very productive in the 1980s. Very little productivity, you know, it, it, from 2010 to 2019. Only two records. Yeah, uh, compared to Ed Sheeran, you know, that who's released, you know, uh, five records in, yeah. in in the 2010s or and. So I, and has uh, been a guest on multitude of others where he's you know co-produced or saying and right. with multitude of other people. And, and you think this has to do with relevance and 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 change uh, of the band that that you you two has adapted itself to to the these changing times. So I think what you two has done is that they have a core base of followers from the 80s and 90s that you said that were there, right? Mm -hmm. But I also believe that they have modified their music in ways that they've experimented with with different styles and formats. And I think they've tried to keep themselves relevant. Now, you can argue whether or not that is really the case. Like, when was the last time they had a number one hit? Something along those lines. And yes, that's true. But I think that they have... Well, they two have, records in the last 10 years is not exactly a high, high output. No, it's not a high output. But, but is it enough to stay relevant with a younger generation? And given the fact of... You know, the people in the 80s and 90s uh, who like them are having children who they might have raised on U2. The U2. Yeah. Are, they, are they drawing from that core base that go as well as then this newer fan base that they're, they're building? And so I think yeah. there's something there. Um, and, and they're still the same band 
they're, they're unlike many of the other bands that have gone through uh, personnel changes or have lost somebody, you know, you, Eagles are one of those that are in there and they lost Glenn Fry. And so they're, you know, is it the same band? Yes. Yes, they bring in others, but it's not the same band that played Hotel California oh. from 1970, whatever, yeah. right? It's, Randy Meisner as well. You yeah. know, he, he, he left the band. But and it's interesting that the Eagles is number 14 on this list. Yeah. And yet they haven't really, well, they released one record in 2000. Okay, yeah. But other than that, they didn't release any other records in the 80s, 90s, or 2010s. That's because all you old fogies, you know, want to go see. But they're still on the list. I I know, isn't that great? They're number 14. But they're one of the best-selling bands of all time. They are. So so they have, and and, and you think about classic songs, and you think about that. And again, where were Rolling Stones on there? Rolling Stones were were very close. They were number two. uh, Yeah, they were number two. Yeah, and again, you you think about the Rolling Stones, they've been around since the early 60s. And they haven't released a, a new record in 50 15 years. Yeah. So, but again, you have such the iconic, you know, uh, playlist that they have of their own songs and people want to see them. And I think there's a part of this. It's like, oh man, I got to see the stones before the, before I die or before they die. Right. Yeah. And wow, I still have an opportunity. I thought last time I was going to be their, their farewell tour. And the time before that, (laughs) their farewell tour and their farewell tour before that. (laughs) Like I haven't seen the stones. I would go see the stones. Katie saw them in Singapore and said it was amazing. Yeah. Uh, Something else about this though, is that tours are not like records. Like uh, the music industry uh, revenues used to be dominated by the 11 to 19 year olds, basically, mm-hmm. because records and CDs were relatively inexpensive. Uh, tours are, you know, going to see a live band is very expensive. It can be very expensive these days. Mm-hmm. You know, Fleetwood Mac, the cheapest ticket at that show was $320. Yeah. And then went way up from there. So I wonder if part of this is that the Stones and U2 are catering to an audience that is older and more affluent than who Ed Sheeran and Taylor Swift is catering to. I think that's- And that they make more money at each show. Because they, they can, can sell the tickets for more. They can sell the tickets for more. I yeah. I think you have a really good hypothesis there. Yeah, that I don't have the data to back up, unfortunately. Yeah, but that's okay. That's how it works. Okay. So, well, thank, right. thanks for listening, folks. All right. And, and re- remember, stay tuned for the, the bonus track. Hello, everyone. This is Kurt with a bonus track and groove idea for this session. A couple key takeaways from this episode with Eugen for me is, first... It only takes one bad apple to negatively change the behaviors of others. Even when the stated social norms uh, is one of good, that one person acting in a negative manner can change the behavior of others to go against that stated norm. Second, that research indicated that this influence only goes one way, making good people more likely to succumb to doing not great things. Lifting people up wasn't demonstrated by the research study that Oigden had done. Now, for both of these aspects, we can extrapolate out to our everyday lives to see some impact. What does it mean to have one toxic member on the team? What influence does a poorly behaving celebrity have on the behavior of our kids or ourselves? We need to be aware of the impacts that this might have, both on us and others. And how can we remove that potential negative influence in these situations? The third key piece that I took away from this, that nudges may not actually change our behaviors outside of the context that they were placed in. 
We don't stop eating cookies in our life because the cafeteria moves them from the front of the cafeteria to the back. Nudges work well in specific contexts, but we need to think about the underlying self and social identities that we have for long-term sustainable change. We need to norm nudge. Okay, here is your groove idea for the week, which is an idea or question that we pose to you, our listeners, for you to ponder or think about for this upcoming week. Is there a toxic person in your life? And if so, what can you do to limit your interaction with that person or the impact that their negative behavior may have on you? Think about how you can inoculate yourself from their negativity. Well, that's it for our show. But before I go, as always, Tim and I want to thank you. We are over 100 episodes now, and we couldn't have done it without you. We want to keep doing this, and the best way to make that happen is to grow our community of groovers. So please, if you like these episodes, share them with a friend, leave a review, go subscribe on iTunes or whatever pod service that you do, subscribe to Behavioral Grooves, and we want to hear from you. So please reach out to us with ideas, thoughts, and feedback. And as always, thank you for listening and allowing us the opportunity to do this thing that we love. Thanks. Thanks.